Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by two of the three authors of Phantoms of a Beleaguered Republic, The Deep State and the Unitary Executive. Stephen Skoranek, John Dearborn, and Desmond King authored this book, which was published in um, 2021 by Oxford University Press. It is a incredibly well-written and deep study of the complexities of our republic um, and the constitutional system that we find ourselves in. Um, but I'm going to let uh, Stephen and John tell us a little bit more about that and how they came to this project itself and about themselves. Welcome to the New Books Podcast, Stephen and John. Thanks, Lily. Thank you so much. And if you could tell us a little bit about yourselves each, um, and also perhaps speak a little bit on Desmond's behalf, um, and tell us how this project originated, uh, that would be uh, most informative for our listeners. Well, the project began uh, back in Oxford. Uh, actually, I was on sabbatical at the Rothamore American Institute, and uh, Des invited me to lunches at uh, weekly lunches at Nuffield College. And over uh, tea and dessert after lunch, we would talk about the Trump presidency, things that we thought were interesting about the Trump presidency and what the Trump presidency might have to tell us about the state of the state in America. And in particular, how uh, Trump's claims about a unitary executive were drawing out would seem to us fundamental design issues and design problems in modern American government. So we decided initially we'd just write an article about this, but the more we got into it and the more cases that we saw of how Trump was drawing these problems out, the project exploded. And by the time I got back to to Yale, I asked uh, John if he would join us uh, to try to sort this out and and put it in uh, yeah, get it into shape as a book. Yeah, and so how I um, got involved in this project, um, so I was Steve's graduate student at Yale. He's He was my dissertation chair, um, and I've had a long-standing interest um, in the relationship between ideas and presidential power. Um, in my own work, I look at the idea of presidential representation, and towards the end of that project, I, you know, came upon the time when the unitary executive theory really starts to take off in the 70s and 80s. So it was a sort of natural um, jumping off point for me as well. I'm with my interests to join on this project. And it was right at the time that I was starting um, as a postdoc at Yale in the Center for the Study of Representative Institutions. Um, So it was a really good way to begin a postdoc to jump on board this book project. And the ideas that sort of frame the investigation is this tension that you talk about, or the phantoms, 
uh, the deep state, which we heard a lot about during the Trump administration, um, and we've also heard about it in the past, but we particularly heard about it in the Trump administration. And the unitary executive, John, that you were just talking about had been of interest to you. Can you define out these two concepts so that we have an understanding of what we're talking about? Sure. So I'll start with the unitary executive theory. Um, So the unitary executive is a constitutional claim or inference. Um, It comes from the sentence opening article two that says the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. Um, In article one uh, for Congress, the legislative purview uh, is limited to powers herein granted. But that wording in Article 2 is unqualified. It's just the executive power. There's sort of, there's nothing else really said about it there. So potentially one could interpret that more broadly. Um, So the implication then of that vesting clause for Unitarians is that the president is vested with all of the executive power in Justice Antonin Scalia's words, not some of it, not part of it. It's all of it. Um, William Barr, for example, before he became Donald Trump's attorney general, told Trump that the president alone is the executive branch. And so in practice, the way to operationalize that is to give the president sort of top-down hierarchical control over administration, especially through the removal power, um, the ability to you know fire anybody that's not implementing the president's preferences on things. Um, and I'll let Steve turn to the deep state side. Yeah, well, the, the deep state is also, um, and it's a, an allegation or an extrapolation or an inference. Uh, I think most, many commentators during the Trump years dismiss Trump's deep state charge as a political, as political hyperbole. But, uh, we decided that that wasn't quite the way, the, the best way to think about it. In fact, uh, the more we thought about it, the more we recognized that the American state is quite deep and that depth was purposefully uh, institutionalized into the state, into the administrative arm. Uh, so where do we see depth? So we say there is, let's set aside the deep state conspiracy and just talk about what are the indicators of depth in the American state? So you could think about depth as a vertical distance from top to bottom, and certainly the American state is pretty deep there from the White House to the Customs House. But when we think about depth, we're thinking about the insulation that protects administrators from arbitrary impositions and that connects them to other actors. So Uh, that connects them to the Congress, for example, that connects them to interest groups, that connects them through the the value of knowledge-based authority to universities and think tanks and the news media. So all of these indicators suggest that, in fact, the American state is and purposely was made quite deep. Uh, Now... uh, So when Trump charges that there's a deep state, what he's suggesting is that these, this uh, administrative depth functions as a kind of um, conspiracy against the president's authority over the executive branch and against presidential will and the will of the people who elected the president. That, um, that, 
the deep state uh, is this entrenched officialdom that resists presidential authority and pursues its own interests and ideology. Now that's the allegation. We wanted to separate the allegation from the actual manifestations of death to recognize that the state is deep and then to put to the test, well, did this depth, uh, uh, did this depth um, function uh, to resist presidential will? To what extent did it resist presidential will? And to what extent is the deep state conspiracy charge valid? And in fact, we found that in some ways, you know, Trump's assertions of a unitary executive drew out these elements of depth and all of the values that depth supports. So uh, what you see in the inter so many people, as you, as you said, Lily, so many people had talked about the deep state and talked about the unitary executive, but they hadn't talked about the interaction and the relationship between them. And that's what we wanted to get out, that this vigorous assertion of direct hierarchical control over administrators actually draws out these dimensions of depth and really shows you the values of depth that were instilled into administration by Congress in particular. So the deep state and the unitary executive kind of draw themselves out of the shadows of the Constitution. That's why we call them phantoms. Uh, the assertion of a unitary executive uh, makes deep state resistance something of a self-fulfilling prophecy because depth is there for a reason. So um, we were interested in that dynamic, how this practical assertion of unity draws out depth and really, I think, gives us a, um, a keen sense. I think one of the things that the Trump interested us about the Trump administration is that it forced us to confront the value of death and the practical meaning of a unitary executive in stripping away or trying to cut through this death. And in, in that regard, you also go through in the book in lots of different places, although not necessarily in a, you know, this happened on this day, on this day, on this day, the sort of evolution of this deep state, which doesn't necessarily have in the constitution, like you will build a deep state. Um, <laughs> it, it, it sort of came with time, with complexity, with size of the nation. So that also is something where, you know, Americans think about the deep state because it's not necessarily, oh, I can point to that. That's a house of Congress. It's not in the constitution that way. How does that figure into this sort of shadow um, role right. that it plays? Right. Well, both of these things are, look, the Constitution is ambiguous about the place of administration and who controls administration. And what we were trying to draw out of the Constitution are, in fact, and what we see in the Trump presidency really are these two competing systems of administrative control, one of which is rooted in the vesting clause and in, and more generally in the separation of powers. The president has all the executive power uh, and he's responsible only to the people who elected him for the exercise of that power. And the downside of that is that it's liable to produce arbitrary impositions. But the other constitutional system, uh, what we call the Republican system, is rooted not in, check, in separation of powers, but in checks and balances. 
and it is hostile to closed hierarchies. It suggests that administration is a shared responsibility. It suggests that um, the way to control administration is to develop uh, uh, intermediary bodies that produce collaboration or that foster collaboration in the control of the executive branch. Now that also has liabilities because it's complicated and it's prone to um, uh, the obfuscation of responsibility. It's, it's prone to um, uh, bureaucratic subversion as bureaucrats are able to play off these different branches from one another. But so I think that in a sense, Trump is reminding us or showing us or bringing to a head or this deep constitutional ambiguity about who is to control the administrative branch and what are the consequences of one of these systems, of, of each of these systems for American government more generally. If I can add a, a concrete example of what Steve refers to as these two systems, I think one of the clearest um, you know, cases of this came in Trump's first impeachment over the Ukraine affair, because frequently when Congress had these various officials from the State Department, from the Defense Department, um, Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the EU, all of those folks were testifying, and many of them, Fiona Hill from the National Security Council especially, would refer to the official policy of the United States towards Ukraine and would refer to how that official policy was sort of developed through an interagency process. And they, they kept referring to that. They talked about Congress's preference for that policy. Well, what you saw when um, President then President Trump's lawyers replied to this in their official sort of defense briefings was, what are these unelected bureaucrats talking about? The president determines the official policy, not these unelected bureaucrats. And so essentially they were just kind of talking past each other. And I think that for us really showed how they really just were operating on totally different assumptions about what good administration actually means. The quite astounding and thing in that first impeachment was the implication that administrators are better representatives of the public interest than the president. And they are unelected. <laughs> um, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, I, I did want to ask you a bit about this tension as well in our understanding of republicanism, because this is also where you come to towards the end of the book in terms of are we in a republic? Or are we in a presidential democracy? Which, again, for political scientists or people who study sort of founding institutions in the United States, we sometimes use these terms a lot, but not everybody is familiar with what these distinctions are. John, John would sure. you like to respond? Well, so what I would what I would say in response to that question, um, I think. One of the things we try to do in the book is look at different systems around the presidency. So I think a sort of the hard distinction between maybe a republic and a president and a presidential system, um, you might think of those as two sort of separate poles. But what I would say is that, you know, over time, you see that every, you know, instance of presidential empowerment over the course of our history. So 
the um, you know Jeffersonian empowerment of the presidency or the Jacksonian empowerment of the presidency with new political parties behind it or the progressives empowerment of the presidency, making the president sort of the lead legislative agenda setter in our system. Each time that happens, there's also this impulse to sort of collectively encase the presidency in the broader government and even society. So in the case of the Jacksonians, you have the rise of the party convention systems, the spoil system, um, you know, links the presidency with local party bosses. In the case of progressives, you, you know, again, empower the president legislatively in terms of agenda setting. But the trade-off of that is progressives really cared about independent expertise. And so they, you know, create civil service and they try to protect administration from pure political interference. Where I think you get the distinction you're referring to is in these recent decades where this move towards a unitary executive in practice the fusing together of this constitutional claim that the president should control everything about administration with the new selection system of primaries and the creation of presidential parties with more personal uh, followings, that is maybe the purest form of this sort of presidential democracy. Um, And I think it moves further away from these Republican remedies because unlike these previous Uh, times of presidential empowerment, the unitary executive doesn't want any of that kind of collective control. It's not trying to make a trade for, well, we'll empower the presidency in this one dimension and give up something elsewhere. It's saying that if the president is elected by a group of people, that the president should have full control over the administration in their name. And that's definitely that's something different than those past Republican sort of systems we've seen. You know, when uh, the great irony of the unit, uh, theory of the unitary executive is its claim to originalism, to, to a uh, going back to an original understanding of the vesting clause. Well, we were interested in that. And we uh, so we, you know, <laughs> went back and scrutinized uh, the opening of Article 2. And uh, you see that, in fact, that the framers had a, a particular understanding of that, which was derived from coupling the vesting clause with the selection system. The selection system follows right after the vesting clause. And the selection system makes the presidential election blind and indirect. That is, the president is only obliquely connected to a popular following in the Constitution. It's not a democratic office. Uh, And Why? I mean, what was interesting about that is that that can pair with this vesting clause. You can give the president all the executive power as long as the presidency is not the strong arm of presidential populism. The presidency is this kind of depoliticized institution. Uh, And that would make it safe to manage the commitments as a whole. Well, we know that that never worked. It didn't work in its own time. And as the president becomes a stronger political leader, and every time that the the president is empowered with new resources for political leadership, you see the other branches qualifying the separation of powers, building these intermediary, intermediary organizations like parties, like the separation of politics and administration for the progressives. They say, okay, well, you can be the political leader but you can't control the executive branch unilaterally. 
And that's why we say these are Republican solutions, even though they're not, they depart farther and farther from the constitutional design, they're Republican solutions in the sense that they're preventing, they're trying to prevent presidential democracy from becoming presidential populism. And what we see after the 1970s with the collapse of the convention system and the uh, assertion of this direct hierarchical presidential control over the executive branch is that the two elements of presidential democracy, management and mobilization, are fused together in this virulent combination where the president controls his own party and the president asserts complete control over the executive branch. That form of presidentialism, we think, is a great departure. You can say uh, uh, that the Constitution, you know, the, the, the vest, we have the original understanding of the vesting, but if there's one thing that the framers wanted to avoid, it was to prevent the executive branch from becoming a strong arm of a presidential party. And that, ironically, is what we've come, <laughs> that's exactly what we've fallen into. And one of the points that you all make towards the very end of the book is that in this context of understanding unitary executives um, or the unitary executive is that presidents don't have to cooperate. Um, They don't have to cooperate with congressional um, sort of parameters that are put on elements of the executive branch. They may have to cooperate sometimes with what the court says, but sometimes maybe that can be finessed. You use finesse a lot in the book. Um, And so in this context, what do we understand about the role of presidential cooperation inside the constitutional system where these pieces are really in tension with one another? I think that a a big revelation... um, for us at the end of the book after going through the cases that we selected from was how much really comes down to norms and how much comes down to whether the president respects them. And that's not to say that Congress or the courts or or other political actors were thinking that they were only relying on norms. There are many examples of them trying to, you know, create actual protections to prevent arbitrary presidential actions. Um, I think one of the best examples of this is Congress creates a 10-year statutory term for the FBI director. So that's a clear indication we expect this to be a relatively independent officer. On the other hand, Congress in the 1970s also declines to try to give the FBI director actual removal protections. And it's actually, if you look at the um, congressional sort of documentation on this, it's, it's funny to read the two sentences that describe the logic of this, because it says on the one hand, we give the 10-year term because we want to keep the FBI director from being politically controlled. On the other hand, we keep the FBI director fireable because we don't want him to be too independent and completely unmoored from political control. So right in that statute, you see that tension where they want to prevent arbitrary you know, imposition by the president to a degree, but it's hard to sort of go all the way and say, we're just going to completely keep this out of the president's domain. In other areas too, you see these attempts within the executive branch through scientific integrity policies to prevent political interference um, at the EPA, or of course, we've seen this with the pandemic. 
And yet, if you actually look at those rules, for one thing, they tend to apply within the departments they are a part of themselves. They certainly don't directly apply to the president. But the second thing is, fundamentally, the existence of those rules is basically at the discretion of executive branch political actors in the first place. And so now one thing Congress is at least thinking about is seeing whether they could put those into statutes instead. And so throughout this process, whether it's things like the statutory terms or instructions for nominating officers, another example is the director of national intelligence. Congress actually says in that law, the president shall nominate somebody with great expertise in this area. Donald Trump didn't care about that. He wanted to nominate who he wanted to nominate by the end, towards the end of his term. And again, it's this example of they can indicate, they can show their preferences, but at the end of the day, some level of presidential cooperation is always assumed. And Trump showed us just how much a president can do when they just won't cooperate. You know, uh, I think... John's right. I mean, the the system is so heavily dependent on norms now. And I don't think that that was always the case. That is, there were institutions before that promoted if they didn't enforce this cooperation, like the Congressional Caucus nominating system, like the party convention, like the uh, uh, independent agencies. Uh, This is what I think bothers us a little bit about looking to Joe Biden as a solution to the problem. So, you know, Joe Biden says, okay, I'm going to respect the independence of the Justice Department. I'm going to respect the scientists when we deal with the pandemic. I'm going to listen to the experts at the EPA. Well, that's just as personal a solution as Trumpism, right? We want to say that the solution is not personal, right? The problem of Trumpism isn't personal, it's institutional, and it requires an institutional solution. And in fact, our history has always looked for these institutional solutions that promote, uh, encourage collaboration in the control of administration. And that's what we should be looking for, not for the next president who's going to do the right thing. And and that was, of course, one of the parts of the book that I found sort of depressing um, (laughs) towards the end. Uh, But you also you also go back to our our sort of constitutional roots in talking about how separation of powers and checks and balances are distinct and have a role in these kind of phantoms. Um, and, and that they are not necessarily, I mean, we all, I often talk to them, talk to my students about them together, um, as we read Federalist 10, um, and as we read Federalist 51, but you make the case throughout the book that these are actually, one is associated with the deep state a bit, and one is associated with the unitary executive. Can you explain how these concepts of separation of powers and checks and balances are actually separated within this tension? Well, I'm not sure that they are separated. Uh, The problem is that they're they're jumbled together. But in terms of their implications for control over administration, they look in very different directions. And it's really, I think, in the control of administration that you see the tension between the separation of powers and checks and balances. Because, uh, as John was saying, the separation of powers lends itself to this 
The president has all the executive power, direct hierarchical, con exclusive control over the executive branch, whereas checks and balances looks to collaboration and cooperation and intermediary institutions that are going to make this a collaborative enterprise. And I think it, you know, uh, it uh, the pr that problem comes home to roost when some when a president asserts, well, uh, unitary executive theory, and when courts right uphold that theory and uh don't i don't think give give due credit to the opposing separation uh, a principle of checks and balances it's it's notable that in a case like um the decision from the court about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau when the Roberts majority um says that insulating that director for a five-year term and that they can't be fired by the president, they say that that, quote, violates the separation of powers. That's their language. And so as, as Steve says, you see the court itself actually privileging the notion of separation of powers over something like checks and balances. And the other thing that's notable in a case like that, um, to go back to something Steve said earlier, you see, even in the Roberts opinion in the CFPB case, this incredible fusion of the, you know, so-called originalist claim of the unitary executive with the very plebiscitary populist, more modern vision of the presidency. So Roberts at one point writes that the presidency was established to be the most democratic branch of government. I mean, frankly, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but you see that he's putting together this claim about the executive power with that plebiscitary understanding. And then you get that, again, combination that says basically administration should be entirely dependent on the president's view and representing the people that elected him. And and so in all of this, what role has Congress evolved into? Because part of, you know, sort of understanding the growing unitary executive potential is that Congress has also either abdicated or sort of stepped back from um, some of its position um, and its powers. What role does it play in the sort of, as you say, this kind of evolution of this dynamic of the phantoms? So I think that one thing that really stood out for us in all of the cases that we looked at, both within the Trump presidency, but also looking at some of their historic roots, um, you know, the laws that had been set up about some of the terms of officials in the executive branch, things like that. Congress institutionally is not only interested in, but frankly depends on having a deeper state. Um, again, they try to indicate their preferences for not having political interference in science or in justice with the laws that they establish first and foremost. So again, the FBI director term is a good example of this. Um, way back in 1870 when the Department of Justice was created. On the one hand, they're putting, you know, all these legal officers in, in this one department in the executive branch, which might favor more presidential control. But on the other hand, the idea at the time was, well, we'll put all these legal officers together and that will create, you know, more of a culture in that department that is somewhat independent of the president and values the rule of law. Um, so, Congress over time consistently has that interest. 
That doesn't mean that every member of Congress does by any means. Certainly, you know, the obvious thing is that in this era of presidential parties, you know, Republicans in Congress, for example, in the Trump presidency very often did not, you know, want to further investigations into executive branch activities, um, or in the case of the first Trump impeachment, obviously, with the exception of Mitt Romney, um, defended the president's conduct by and large. But even there, it's notable that whenever Congress is addressing, you know, some things like the funding of science in the Trump presidency, or the intelligence community in the Trump presidency, that they seem to have a lingering ambivalence, even some of the members of the president's party, about complete presidential control. The Senate Intelligence Committee, for example, um, you know, basically backed up and even in the end went a bit further than the Robert Mueller report. Um, Even Republicans on that committee were very, very wary of just allowing Trump to potentially fire Mueller or discredit his work. So you see, even in that case, this institutional interest that Congress has in depth. We make uh, the case in the book that you can discern a change in Congress's response in the 1970s, coinciding with the change in the selection system and these assertions under Nixon of strong executive control over the exec- over the uh, exec- presidential control over the executive branch, that Congress adopts a more combative style instead of overtures to cooperation. Here's some new institutions through which we can cooperate. Uh, Congress, you know, creates its own budget office, right? Uh, uh, and we think that that's probably, you know, Congress is not going to win in a face-to-face, in a point-by-point uh, battle for control. Congress has won historically when it's looked for new ways to instill cooperation between the branches. And so if there's a kind of congressional strategy, it shouldn't be tit-for-tat, you know, the president does this, we're going to do that, we're going to, we're going to rein this and we're going to rein that. And, and uh, I guess we would encourage uh, thinking more creatively about ways in which these institutions can cooperate. And creating institutions that incentivize the president to cooperate, if that's still possible, given the current selection system. And um, and you also note that because of the way that these two branches now are operating, that the president, the presidency is more of a unitary branch that can express these sort of powers and that the Congress prefers the deep state, as you just noted, that it kind of puts the court in a position that it wasn't originally designed to necessarily occupy as kind of the arbiter. Um how does the judiciary and, and specifically, again, the, the Supreme Court come into this role again after the 1970s? Well, you see in something like the CFPB case, actually a pretty clear both you know, recognition for us of how powerful the court has gotten in this role, but also from some on the court itself of the potential issues with that. So Uh, As we noted, you know, the Roberts uh, opinion for that decision says that that congressional law about the CFPB, quote, violated the separation of powers. And so that's the court actually going into the role of saying, we basically determine what the boundaries of the separation of powers are. 
a different vision on the court, interestingly, from a promoter of the idea of presidential administration, Elena Kagan, um, came in her dissent, where she basically said that, you know, the court shouldn't be involved in a decision like this, uh, to some extent, that it's up to the presidency and Congress you know, in their, you know, political contestation with each other to come up with new institutional arrangements. And that when they do, the court should respect them and sort of get out of the way. Um, There is a little bit of an irony, as I said, in in Kagan being the one to write that dissent, because she, from her experience in the Clinton administration, writes what we sort of view as the the democratic um, version, in a way, of the unitary executive, which is the virtues of the president controlling administration. She writes about the notion that the president is sort of the single-minded seeker of the national interest and for that reason should have greater control. But in this role on the court, she seems clear-eyed about the implications of how empowered the court has been in determining the separation of powers. And also about the fact that, as Steve said, when Congress and the presidency sort of contest this straight up, as opposed to seeking cooperation, a formalistic insistence on the separation of powers over time does really seem to work to the presidency's advantage because they and their defenders can point to the vesting clause and say, this all belongs to me. Congress doesn't have a part of it. So getting away from that formalistic insistence and seeking out opportunities to incentivize cooperation really seems to be the only path forward. Yeah, the court seems to be intent on trying to sort this out for us. And we think that that's not not likely to succeed and is not a very good idea. That in the past has been done pragmatically in sort of jerry-rigged arrangements between the president and the Congress. And to have the court come in and say, well, this is the only way that's consistent with the Constitution strikes us as uh, as counterproductive. You see it also not only in the CFPB case, but in uh, uh, administra- uh, how the, the last court handled uh, administrative law judges. And this, uh, the danger of politicizing administrative law judges, administrative law judges are in the executive branch. Um, and they were civil service, they were uh, civil service employees, merit-based appointments. Well, the court said, well, they're making real decisions in the executive branch, and therefore they've got to be inferior officers controlled by political officers. So you can imagine this uh, idea of politicizing the appointment of administrative law judges and the implications of that. Just just this week, we had another decision where the courts are trying to sort out, you know, trying to plug these different administrators into this three-branch scheme with the idea that the president is the chief executive. And um, uh, it seems to be a rigid response and also one that favors the kind of politicization under the presidency. If I can also add, the administrative law judge case is a really good contrast to some of the other cases we discuss in the book that are that are probably very well known to many folks. You know, the the Russia investigation, the first Trump impeachment, um, even something like you know Trump doctoring the weather map uh, for the hurricane in in late 2019, or of course the the pandemic, which we've all lived through. The administrative law judge case stands out because it it lacks the bombast of the other cases. So many times 
you know, it's not like Trump's unitary claims are subtle. He says, I have an article two, which gives me rights at a level nobody has ever seen before or things like that. Or he fires James Comey in a big public spectacle. The administrative law judge case um, is, you know, other than legal scholars and interested observers, probably not one that gets a lot of attention. And the other difference is that it shows the long game of advocates of the unitary executive theory. This was something that pretty early on in the Trump uh, administration, uh, the Solicitor General Noel Francisco was looking for a case to take on, um, you know, to further his ideas about this. The administrative law judges at the SEC offered an opportunity. And it's notable, too, that once the court handed down its decision that administrative law judges were inferior officers, that the Trump administration then very quickly started issuing guidance that these didn't have to be appointed on merit anymore, that they could just be politically selected. And the best indicator of that long game perhaps comes from Stephen Breyer's dissent in that case, where he actually warns that, you know, maybe this is a limited decision in itself, but incrementally it's a step towards, in his words, you know, threatening the very foundation that's existed since the Civil Service Act of of 1883, since the Pendleton Act. Um, So that's the long game that advocates of the unitary executive have. And cases like that administrative law um, decision, the Lucia case, are stepping stones towards that. And I wanted to ask one more question because about the unitary executive, because when I was first hearing it in popular discourse was actually during the W. Bush administration, um, when you heard it more from the vice president, from Vice President Cheney, than you really did from President Bush, who, of course, obviously was the executive. Um, and that, you know, there were sort of moves after 9-11 that sort of went in that direction. And there was a lot of discussion of Cheney and and others around Cheney trying to reestablish what had been taken away from the executive during Watergate um, or post Watergate. Um, And so again, we have the, the, the blueprint for the possibility of a unitary executive in the vesting clause. Um, but it has sort of come forward more obviously in the last 20 years. Can you explain how now it seems to be growing as not only a concept, but also something that has been implemented by both Democrats and Republicans? It's no accident. You know, uh, Cheney was... uh an official in the Ford administration after Watergate. And look, Gerald Ford had no, had, wasn't the, our only unelected president. Uh, and so they're casting around for some basis on which Ford can assert legitimacy and power and they latch onto the vesting clause. Uh, and you see it, the idea grows uh, in particular in Republican party circles so that you get a, a very strong uh, assertion of unitary executive theory in the Reagan Justice Department under Ed Meese. And then again, as you say, and George W. Bush, and and we want to say almost a caricature of this in the uh, Trump presidency, a kind of like, well, this is the, <laughs> a, uh, a vivid 
demonstration of the practical meaning of this in the Trump presidency. Uh, so, I mean, the tendency, I guess, is to dump on Republicans and say it's a Republican idea, it's a Republican theory, uh, it comes out of the Federalist Society, um, it's institutionalized in the court by Republican judicial appointees. But we went back and, you know, it's clear that something was happening in the 70s that was bigger than that. Uh, Jimmy Carter you know, ran against the pretensions of the Nixon presidency. But Jimmy Carter was a populist and he took over the Democratic Party in a kind of hostile takeover of the Democratic Party. And if you look at Jimmy Carter was like obsessed with what he called bureaucratic inefficiencies. And he made civil service reform and government reorganization a priority. And the kinds of things he did, did make uh, executive branch uh, political officials in the... Uh, civil servants, mingling civil servants with executive branch political appointees. You see uh, this, uh, this idea that making the executive branch more responsive to the president is very clear in the Carter administration and in the Clinton administration. Uh, 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 Ronald Reagan Institute's centralized review of regulatory decisions in OIRA. And everybody thinks that Clinton's going to come and he's going to dismantle that. Well, Clinton doesn't dismantle it. He strengthens it, right? Uh, so uh, while the theory resides in the Republican Party and in Republican and conservative circles, uh, the practice, I think, is more uniform across presidents since the 1970s. And I think we would relate that to you know, these more basic changes in the selection system so that uh, the, uh, the party system and the selection system have become much less collaborative and much more separate, right? The president has his own party and that selection system being associated with a more aggressive and assertive uh, stance toward the executive branch. I think it's worth also noting, Steve mentioned the Clinton OIRA example, um, you know, subsequent administrations, including Trump, I think in a striking way, you know, the Trump administration, when they issued their own guidance about OIRA referred very heavily to the Clinton executive order about that. So they looked to that as precedent for what they were doing. And the second thing is um, very recently, one of the key figures from the Trump administration, first in the administration and then um, in the judiciary, is Naomi Rao. She was the OIRA administrator. She was then appointed by Trump to be a judge on the D.C. Circuit. Um, she just had an article that came out last week where she said, quote, OIRA operationalizes the unitary executive. So again, Clinton may not have adopted the idea as formal theory per se, but you see in somebody like Rao's opinion, that's what OIRA fundamentally is about. And, and you know, I finished the book and I was depressed. Um, but <laughs> you also say in the conclusion that there is room for optimism, um, and also for reform that, that isn't necessarily structural so much as kind of, um, I don't want to say personality because I don't think that's right, but, um, that can happen without, you know, amendments to the constitution, so can either of you talk a little bit about how you might see some of these reforms going? 
I well, think that um, each of us has a maybe a different track of, of thought that, that work together on this. So I'll, I'll defer the party side and, and some other things to Steve. On the Congress side, to go back to something we discussed earlier, you know, I'm not saying there's a great hope for this in, in the current moment, given, you know, the partisanship in, in Congress and other things. But if you do look historically, Congress is fundamentally the creative branch of government, not only in the institutions that it designs, you know, in the administration, but even the presidency itself. It was Congress, for example, that built the presidency into the lead legislative agenda setter with things like submitting a budget, with submitting an economic report. So for me, one of the key steps is for Congress itself to sort of reclaim its voice and understand its own capacity to not only you know pass laws, but to actually change the role of the presidency, which it has done historically. You know, um... I think one of the great achievements of the conservative legal movement has been to constitutionalize our discussions of, pres of the presidency and presidential power. So everybody is debating the vesting clause. Everybody's trying to get straight with the framers intent. What did they really mean? But uh, I think in our view, what's significant is that the framers formula for the presidency was a non-starter. That is management without political mobilization, right? That was a non-starter. 200 years of institutional improvisation sought to compensate for the limitations in that formula. And all of those solutions, the Jeffersonian solution, the Jacksonian solution, the progressive solution, they were all more or less direct critiques of the constitutional system. And now all of a sudden, oh no, separation of powers, go back to the framers intent. Well, that's like bait and switch. I mean, that's like, uh, you know, we're going to build this whole apparatus based on the con on the idea that the Constitution basically got it wrong. Right. And now we're going to go back to the Constitution to capture all this power for the president. I think that the hopeful, the hopeful sign is to break our fixation on the Constitution, to not debate whether the president has all the executive power. That, that was premised on the idea that the president wouldn't be a political officer. He wouldn't be a political leader. He wouldn't be a mobilizer. So that was a package deal. That package deal has been, uh, has been superseded. And so the solution is to the historical solution rather than the constitutional solution is to think about presidential selection and to think about the organization of our political parties. Because through, through mechanism, different selection mechanisms and a different organization of political parties, I think is our best chance to foster or encourage more collaborative relationships within these in constitutional institutions. So it's not an amendment to the Constitution to somehow <laughs> make the presidency more clear, um, yeah. since it is a little bit muddled in a number of ways. Um, but to figure out other, the, the sort of non-constitutional institutions. That's the that, way it's always been. That's the way it's always been. Right. And so I look forward to perhaps seeing some reforms. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wanted to thank uh, John Dearborn and Stephen Skoranek and the absent Desmond King for joining me today to talk about Phantoms of a Beleaguered Republic, the Deep State, and the Unitary Executive. This is published by Oxford University Press in 2021. 
Um, and I assume it is available at Oxford University Press's website and any place else that you purchase your books. Um, thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today. Thank you, Lily. Thank you very much, Lily.